Thank you, Melissa. Um, as we get started this morning, we've already spent some time in prayer. We've spent some time talking about community. We here at the church at Lachlan Springs, we want to create space for that type of community. And this year in 2023, we are going to take the first Sunday of every month. I realize today's the second Sunday of the month, but let's just not pay attention to that technicality. Starting this evening, the first Sunday of every month, and in the evenings, we're going to have a meet just down the hall here in our um, space. It's going to be a potluck meal. Don't overthink it. Bring what you have. Bring something to share. We're going to put all the food out there, and we're going to gather around the table together. We're trying to create space for community and the overlap of the sacred and the ordinary. That starts tonight, 6 to 7.30. If you are seeking community, if you're new, I would encourage you, show up, be a part of this place. We would love to get to know you this evening. John 3.16. Anybody ever heard of that one before? Like, this, this, this is one of the big ones. You know, I've never preached on John 3.16. I realized that this week, which is kind of crazy because this, of, of like all the big passages, this is the one that it seems like everyone knows. It may be literally the most famous sentence in the entire Scripture. You know, let, let's, let's say it together. For God so loved the world that He gave... That whosoever, yep, there we go. Solid, solid. And, and it, it's always so good to get to quote that verse because you get to say things like, shall not perish, whosoever, begotten, right? Who says begotten? Raise your hand if you just said the word begotten. Raise your hand if you have ever said that word in any context other than quoting John 3.16. <laughs> Maybe Leviticus. I bet Alec has. Um, the fact that we quote John 3.16 so readily, the fact that when we quote it, we use words like whosoever and shall not perish and begotten, is actually proof that despite its fame, the meaning of it we don't think that much about. Most of us don't even know what the word begotten means, yet it just rolls off the tongue as we're quoting John 3.16. Over the next month, we are going to remedy that gap because we are going to spend the remaining four Sundays in the month of January in this verse and this verse alone. One sentence, four phrases Four weeks. The reason we're doing that is because in taking this verse one phrase at a time, each phrase when, when properly considered contains a profound truth, the weight of which is almost too heavy to bear. Why would we spend an entire month in one verse? Because because this is the gospel, y'all. 
This is it, the gospel distilled in one sentence, and what better way to begin a year than immersing ourselves, soaking in, drowning in the powerful, profound, life-changing, scandalously simple gospel of Jesus Christ. In order to do so, we have to lay a little bit of groundwork. Because you see, we here at the church at Lachlan Springs, we believe every word, every sentence, every chapter, every book of the Bible is the living, breathing word of the living, breathing God. We also believe that every word, every sentence, every chapter, every book is informed by the whole. None of it exists in a vacuum. Even those verses whose fame might have shined brighter, outgrown the rest of the Scripture, verses like John 3.16. It's not meant to be taken out of the Scripture and looked at as an individual verse. So we need to spend a little bit of time looking at the context. John chapter 3, we're really early in Jesus' ministry, although his, his fame and reputation is already beginning to grow, crowds are already beginning to follow him. It's Passover time. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. He goes into the temple in John chapter 2. He sees the way it's being desecrated by people that, that are using the temple to, to make money, using the temple to consolidate their own power, using the temple to, to discriminate against the poor and the marginalized. Any of this sound familiar? It's a different sermon for a different day, but that's what Jesus found when he entered into the temple. He was so frustrated and upset, he went back to where he was staying. He wove his own whip, which is like a pretty baller move, and then he comes back the next day, and this was the first time that Jesus cleaned out the temple using that whip, overturning tables, running out the money changers, running out those that were sell, uh, selling sacrifices, Immediately after that, John chapter 3, right at the beginning, we're introduced to this man named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is one of these minor recurring characters in John's gospel. He's not around enough for us to consider him a central figure, but he pops up enough that we feel like we know a lot about him. We certainly can follow his very important story arc in John's gospel. Nicodemus was wealthy, he was important, he was educated, he was powerful. He was one of the Pharisees, those kind of religious elite, religious leaders that we learn so much about in the gospel. They're, they're really influential and powerful in Jewish culture. They're also strict legalists, passionately enforcing the 600 plus laws that are found in the Jewish Torah. Nicodemus was not only one of the Pharisees, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. That's even a step up. The Sanhedrin was a group of 70 men. It was established in the Old Testament. For lack of a better comparison, it's kind of the rough equivalent of the Jewish Supreme Court. Like these were the top of the top. He was the very definition of a religious ruler in Jerusalem amongst the Jews. Now, we meet Nicodemus there at the beginning of chapter 3, and famously, we meet him when he comes to 
to meet Jesus, and he comes at night. Now, if y'all have studied the Gospel of John, if y'all have studied this chapter, if you've studied the life of Nicodemus, you've probably read a lot about the time that Nicodemus came to meet Jesus, the time that he came to have this discussion with Jesus. Remember, Jesus has just cleared out the temple, which was a super controversial act and really established him as the anti-Pharisee, the foil to the power of the Pharisees. Nicodemus himself was a Pharisee. Maybe he came at night because he was scared or he was embarrassed. He didn't want his Pharisee brethren to find out. He didn't want to get in trouble. He didn't want to put himself at risk. Maybe. But I don't really buy it. There's lots of reasons that Nicodemus could have come at night. Maybe that, well, that's when he was available. Maybe that's when he knew Jesus would be there. He was a very busy man. He had a super busy calendar. He was a very important man. He was probably used to kind of the private shopping experience. Maybe he wanted time with Jesus alone, and he said, I'm just going to go at night where I've got his one-on-one -on -one attention. I don't want to be a part of all of these crowds. We don't know exactly why Nicodemus showed up at night. What we do know is every time Nicodemus shows up in John's gospel, John chapter 3, John chapter 7, John chapter 19, Nicodemus does not give a rip about what people think about him. So it's a stretch to think all of a sudden he's scared. Now we don't know why he showed up at night. What we do know is throughout John's writings, specifically John's gospel, John uses this imagery of night and darkness in a very specific connotation. He's constantly comparing night to day, darkness to light, to show the spiritual state, to show spiritual darkness, spiritual ignorance versus spiritual light and spiritual understanding. By pointing out that Nicodemus approaches Jesus at night, what John is telling us is Nicodemus came to Jesus in a state of spiritual darkness and spiritual ignorance. Beginning of John chapter 3, we see Nicodemus come to Jesus as an individual, and we see this exchange between Jesus and this Pharisee, Nicodemus, and it starts out a little bit awkward. Right at the beginning, Nicodemus comes and, and he introduces himself and, and he addresses Jesus very respectfully. Rabbi, he says. Respectful title. We've seen what you've done. We've seen your power. We've seen these miracles. You must come from God. And, and Jesus' response is seemingly non-responsive at all. It's a non sequitur at best. It's downright rude at worst. It's certainly really awkward. Rabbi Nicodemus says, we've seen your power, you must come from God. And Jesus' response is, you must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. That's that's, that's really weird, right? That's a really awkward exchange. But the relationship, the connection 
between John chapter 3, verse 2 and John chapter 3, verse 3, between Nicodemus' introduction and Jesus' response is foundational in the way we will look at John 3.16 over these next four weeks. Remember who Nicodemus was, this Pharisee, this member of the Sanhedrin, often set up as kind of the bad guys in the New Testament, and often they really, frankly, were the bad guys in the New Testament. But one thing you cannot deny about the Pharisees is they were devout. They were dedicated to their religion. They were dedicated to the law. Nicodemus was a man that had spent his entire life looking for the Messiah. Nicodemus was a man that had dedicated everything he was to anticipating the promised one, the one that would come and introduce, usher in the kingdom of God, every new rabbi that would come along. Is that, is that the one? Is this the guy? Maybe, maybe. Or, or this one over here, that's definitely not the guy. Jesus was no exception. There were rumors flying. And Nicodemus wanted to know because he had spent his entire life with his head on a swivel looking for the Messiah. Those of us that grew up in kind of conservative evangelical traditions, especially in the 80s, know exactly what this is like because we spent nearly a decade doing the same thing, except from the exact opposite perspective. If you grew up in the evangelical church in the 80s, you constantly had your head on a swivel looking for the Antichrist. Does everybody remember this, right? Yeah, eight reasons in 88, that's right. Um, every president, there's always an essay on why the president was the Antichrist. Every single one that came along. Certainly every leader of our perceived enemies, like every Russian leader, every Chinese leader, every whatever Middle Eastern country you want to put in their leader, they're definitely the Antichrist absolutely every lead singer of every heavy metal band <laughs> was the Antichrist. You know, there were all these conspiracy theories, and there were these chain letters. That, you know, it, was, it was, grab this bottle of shampoo and, and look at the symbol at the end of the instructions. That's a satanic symbol, and it's proof positive that the CEO of Procter & Gamble, he's the Antichrist. It was constantly looking. That's Nicodemus. Every single one. Maybe this is the one. This one must be the one. This one can't be the, the one. And so he sees everything that Jesus is doing. He goes to meet Jesus as an individual. And the first thing he says is, Rabbi, we've seen your power. We've seen these miracles. You must be sent by God. Right? It seems like a statement. It is absolutely a question. Are you the one we've been waiting on? Are you the one I've been anticipating? Are you the one that's going to introduce the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God? And then Jesus responds by saying, you must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus responds not by directly answering his question, but by giving him instructions in how to enter into the kingdom. Essentially, the response is, Nicodemus, you're asking the wrong question. The question is not, am I going to introduce the kingdom of heaven? The question is, are you ready to enter into it? 
And that kicks off this discussion about new birth, new life, what all of this means that eventually in verses 14 and 15 leads to Jesus using this example of Moses raising up the snake in the wilderness. Which again, it seems really awkward. It seems completely unconnected. But if you remember who Nicodemus was and the spiritual condition in which he arrived at Jesus, you would also remember that Nicodemus would have known exactly what Jesus is talking about. Nicodemus had spent his entire life studying the Scripture, studying the Torah. When Jesus says it's just like when Moses raised up the snake in the wilderness, Nicodemus' mind would have gone to Numbers 21. God's people, the people of Israel, they've been led out of captivity in Egypt. They're wandering the wilderness. They've already started to grumble. They've already started to complain. They've already started to turn their back on the God that saved them. They've already started to forget who God was. They've already started to forget who they were in God. They've already started to go their own way. Next thing you know, they are set upon by a literal brood of vipers, venomous snakes, just people getting bit right and left, men, women, and children, dropping dead from the venom. Like, it was a pretty gruesome scene. Not surprisingly, God's people are alarmed, to say the least. As they've been bitten, they've seen these other people that have been bitten, that, that have dropped dead, they run to Moses, like, Moses, we get it, we, we've turned our back on God, please talk to him, please save us. God tells Moses, make a snake, put him on the end of a pole, hold him up, whoever looks at the image of this snake will be saved. Jesus says, Nicodemus it's just like that. That's who you are, wandering in the wilderness, in spiritual darkness, poison coursing through your veins as good as dead. And just like God made a way in the desert, He's made a way now. That's who you are. That's why I'm here. And then he enters into this beautiful distillation of the gospel. John 3, 16. God loved you so much that he sent his only son so that whoever believes in him won't die, but will have eternal life. It is a masterful summary of the gospel, and the whole thing is couched in terms of God's love. It is God's love that compels the gospel. There was no way, and he made a way. Why? Because that's how much he loves. Now, it's not groundbreaking to point out that this concept of God's love tends to fall woefully short in many of our lives. 
We can, we can hear about it. We can sing about it as, we, as we've done so much this morning. We can read about it, but the impact isn't quite there. There are several reasons for this. I mean, one is we are incredibly lazy with our vocabulary in the English language. We ignore words like adore, appreciate, enjoy, fancy, admire, revere, venerate, all of these things that describe our relationship to someone or something with its incredible infinite nuance. And we just default to the word love. It's why I, I love my wife, and I love Nashville Soccer Club, and I love a rare filet with blue cheese crumbles on top. My relationship to those three things is very different, and I know that. But I use the exact same word to describe all of them, and the result is a word that is overused and undervalued. A result is a concept of love that is entirely watered down. So when we hear of God's love, we don't really know exactly where it fits. There's another reason that it falls short for so many of us. Because despite the fact that every single person in this room, every single person watching online, every single person that you will pass on the sidewalk or in the grocery store today, every single person is created in God's image. Despite that, we view God in our image. Therefore, we view His love through that same lens. I know if someone that I loved did to me what I have done to God, I know exactly how I would react. Therefore, that must be the way God reacts to me. Or if you look at it from the flip side, I have had someone in my life that told me they loved me. I know what I had to do to earn that love. I know what I had to do to keep that love. I know the way that love manipulated me. I know what happened when that love was kept from me. I know what happened when that person that said they loved me turned their back on me. I know what it feels like to be betrayed by love. I am just waiting for God to do the same thing. You see, when we view God's love through the lens of our love, our love is imperfect. Our love is conditional. Our love is fragile. Our love is finite. We assume God's love is the same. Even if we can articulate that it's not, we can't understand that it's not. We can't recognize that God's love is perfect. We can't understand that God's love is unconditional. 
that God's love is unbreakable, that God's love is infinite. But this is the love that's described in John 3.16. This is the love that's described throughout the Scriptures. If you've got your Bible open, flip with me a few books to the right to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in the first verse. Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as others were also. That's a lot of words. What Paul is describing as he is writing to his friends in the church at Ephesus is their previous spiritual conditions. You were dead, not dying, not sick, such that the, the proper medical care, the proper medicine, the proper diet, the proper exercise, if you just tried hard enough, if you just changed your ways, if you just started doing this thing on January 1st that you promised yourself you would do last January 1st, if you finally did that thing, you would get better. No, you don't get better from being dead. Paul says, you were dead. And then, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, it starts with the two most important words in the entire Scripture, and I am not overstating it. You were dead, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though you were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. You were dead, but God made a way for you to live. That's the gospel. I didn't get that. Could you try again? <laughs> I said, that's the gospel. Got to burn that thing. <laughs> the idea, the recognition that we were dead, not, not, not the princess bride, mostly dead, all dead, to where there is nothing we could do, but God did something anyway. Why? God who is rich in mercy because of His great love made us 
alive. It's the love that compels everything. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5. What is proof of God's love? Proof of God's love is that He did all this even while we were His enemies. While we still hated Him. While we still turned our back on Him. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't even ask for it. But He did it anyway. Because that's how much He loves for God so loved the world. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, did not come because He loves a select few. He did not come because He loved those who loved Him back. He did not come because he loved those that deserved it, those that earned it, not even those that asked for it. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, came because he loves you. You were enough. If it was only you, he still would have come. That is the intensity of God's love. God loves you and there's nothing that you can do to stop Him. We're going to spend the next three weeks after this week looking at the intensity of God's love, the manner of God's love, the reason for God's love, all of those things. But this morning, before we leave here tonight, I want us to just sit in His Pure, simple, perfect, infinite, unbreakable, unconditional love. As we close out this morning, I want you to take a moment to consider what God thinks of you. Let's take a moment, let's bow our heads and close our eyes, not because that is any sort of sacred position, not because God can't speak to you otherwise, not because you can't speak to your Creator otherwise, but quite frankly, because it eliminates distractions. Consider for a moment what God thinks about you. Is he thinking, man, you're such a disappointment. I had such high hopes. Is he thinking, you know what? You gave it your best shot. But not nearly good enough. 
Is he thinking, everything I did for you and this is the way you repay me? Or is God thinking right now? I'm so delighted in you, my beloved. This morning as you approach your creator, may you be reminded that when God thinks of his people, when God thinks of you, love swells in his heart. A smile beams across his face. God loves you. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you more because his love is perfect and infinite. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you less because his love is perfect and infinite. you don't know that love this morning it's not only true love it's the very definition of love it is the unmeasurable thing by which all other things are measured it's the love you've been looking for your entire life And it is freely available. Just look upon the one who was sent. Jesus, this morning, we are so grateful. Grateful doesn't even describe it. That compelled by love, you made a way when there was no way. It is in that position of being perfectly loved that we rest this morning. Pray these things in your name. Amen.